Welcome to our North Church podcast. We hope this message encourages you. For further information about our church, please visit churchnorth.com or check out our social media at Church North. Today's speaker is Pastor Tyrone Reed. Today I want to just I want to get straight into it, um, just because I, I have so much to speak on this topic, but. I only have one sermon to, to do it all in, and I don't want to end up down rabbit holes and rabbit warrens just trying to cover everything in a time that's just not feasible. So I want to try and stick to a few points and just point out just some basic observations that I've seen in prayer and just some convictions that I've found through reading the scriptures when encouraging around prayer and, and just the season of life that I'm in also which is, um, you know, being a married man, father of two, like my wife and I, we'll be married six years in September. And um, we've got two little boys, amazing little boys, full of energy, the both of them, one's three, one's uh, one in a couple of weeks, the 4th of Feb. And um, it can be difficult to, to make the time to pray, you know, working, serving in the church it can be, it can feel difficult and it can feel a real pressure and a challenge and more of an add and a burden than it is something that's liberating and something that's a burden lifter. And so there's just a few things I want to just unpack within the text that we're going to read through today to speak into this as I think it's so necessary. And, and I think prayer is something that's quite lost in the modern Western church, if I'm completely honest. I think there are many practices of the Christian faith that are lost in the modern Western Christian church. I think many a times we try and... We, we approach the Bible with the lens of the culture and try and interpret and read the Bible through what the culture is saying rather than going to the scriptures to help inform us as to how we're to view the world. And so our worldviews are shaped by what we hear and see around us. You know, we spend so much time in front of screens that teach us how to live life, that inform us on our views and our perspectives of what life is, what the meaning of life is and what life should look like, the things that I should strive for, the things that I should work for, the things that matter. And it's complete fallacy, deception and lies in so many ways. Some things are out there are true and some things, you know, it's a little bit of truth and then it just leads to a lie. And I can feel myself going down a rabbit warren, so I'll, <laughs> I'll keep it moving. <laughs> We're going to look at a passage of scripture today. It's uh, Mark chapter 1, from verse 21 through to 39, I'll read. Um, but just to give just a little bit of context around this, this passage, this is the gospel of Mark. So Mark has, has written this gospel, John Mark, and... I believe it's the first gospel that was written. And essentially, the gospels are laid out quite differently. They all seem very similar, but there's some key significant differences within them. In the gospel of Mark, one of the key uh, differences is it's quite action-packed. It's shorter than the others. You know, it's only 16 chapters. Um, And Mark gets straight to the point. In chapter one, you know, we're already seeing Jesus doing tons of miracles, Whereas in Matthew and Luke, it's, it's different. Matthew and Luke, you know, Jesus, we're going through genealogies. I think with Luke, it's all the way back to like um, Adam. 
like you've got genealogies coming forth. You've got like lots of these different things happening to set up the gospel. But Mark gets straight to the point. And the reason why I've read this passage out of Mark is simply because I think Mark highlights something um, that shows how busy Jesus was at this point. So in, in verse 20, from verse 21, Mark chapter 1, verse 21, it says that they went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were also amazed and they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. News about him spreads quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. The evening after sunset, sorry, the evening after sunset, the people brought down to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. This is the key passage that we'll see in today. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and he went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and driving out demons. And so, as you can see here, there's a lot that's going on. You know, Jesus is, just before this, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. After he's tempted in the wilderness, he's, 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 well, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And then he moves towards Galilee to start preaching the gospel. And he enters the town, he enters this synagogue, and he starts teaching in the synagogue. And anyone who knows about like ministry in any way, shape, or form, serving people, preaching the word and stuff like that, it can it can be quite taxing. It can take quite a bit from you. Feels like you're pouring out quite a bit. And it's a good thing, pouring out in a good way, you know, serving people. And so Jesus is he's preaching, and then Whilst he's, he's sharing the gospel in the synagogue, there the uprises someone with a demon in them, and then Jesus just casts the demon out of that person. So Jesus pours out some more. And then he gets word that Peter's uh, mother-in-law is ill. So it's like immediately they head over to her house. Jesus lays hands on her. She's healed. 
And then before you know it, the word spreads throughout the town. And then it says that the whole city showed up at the door for healing. And it says that Jesus healed many, many people who had diseases and illnesses. It says that he then cast out demons from all of these people. And the bit that gets me is verse 35. It says, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went to a solitary place where he prayed. And I think to myself, how tired must he have been? Like, I'm not going to lie, I feel shattered right now. <laughs> like, it's, it's hard getting a good night's sleep at the minute. And these lights are in my eyes and they're a bit hazy. <laughs> I, feel, I feel tired already. I think it's about how tired must he have been. Now, I don't, I don't lay this at your feet to say, you're all sinners, you're all doing awful, you're, forget sleep, you need to just be in prayer. That's not what I'm saying. I don't see this as a, as a general practice from Jesus, at least documented in the Gospels. I don't see him doing this every single day. Do you know what I mean? What I want to speak about today is like the prayer of solitude, the prayer in silence, the prayer in a place of desolation, a, play, a prayer in a place where there's nobody else. But we just go away and seek God. And Jesus pours out so much all these days, and he gets to the point where he's like, man, sleep isn't what's going to give me, isn't what's going to revive me. I need fellowship and communion with the Father. Now, for me, I'm, I'm 32 years old. I've, God saved me three weeks before my 18th birthday in a very like, specific way. I remember the moment in my bedroom. You know, I've been saved more or less, what, 14 years. And, and very much my, my picture and my understanding of prayer was, was simply like I go to God, I just ask for what I need, and then I, I keep it moving. I get down on my knees or I'll sit down, I'll close my eyes, I'll ask God for what I need, I say thank you, amen, and then I keep it moving. And I always thought prayer was just asking, just asking for things. And I went through my, Christ, my Christian journey like that, thinking that it was that. I don't know if anyone else can relate to that, but I was thinking that it was just simply that. And as I've journeyed my faith, I've come to realise that God speaks to us back in prayer. It won't be anything um, like revolutionary for any of you to know. Many of you would experience the same thing. God speaks to us in, our, in prayer. God answers our prayers in specific ways through people, through his scriptures, speaking to our spirit. Like he, he speaks to us in various ways and it's, it's as the result of prayer. But the one thing I, I've, I've come to learn recently is how transformational prayer is. And that's the, the, the very purpose of prayer is to change us, it's to transform us. When you look at the word prayer in the original language, in, in the Greek, the, the word literally means to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes or human ideas for his wishes or his ideas as he imparts faith. I'm going to say that again. To pray literally means to interact with the Lord by switching human wishes or human ideas for his wishes or his ideas. In other words, what prayer does is it changes your heart that's the primary reason and the primary um, motive, also the primary outcome. 
And there's a change. I realise it's not just me asking for stuff. Like there's, there's more to it. You, you see it listed in other parts of the Bible. In 1 Timothy 2, like Paul essentially says that I, 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 uh, I pray with supplications, with prayer, intercession and thanksgiving, thanksgiving, like four different types Prayer, there's like these different types. And I don't want to like get bogged down in too many of these things, but I want to just highlight the very fact that it's the it's a switching of ideas. A switching of ideas. Turn with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14 and verse 13. Because here we see the motive of prayer. In in John chapter 14 and 13. It says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And I will do whatever, I will do whatever um, you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. He said, Jesus says, I will do whatever you ask in my name. And that whole concept of asking in the name of Jesus is asking in accordance with his will or asking in accordance, uh, asking in his authority. And, and so to ask in someone's name is to understand their character, understand what their desires are, what they're about. And you ask from that place. I'm not sure if you're familiar, but there's a passage in James chapter four, in James chapter four, uh, verses two to three, um, James says that you don't have because you don't ask. But then he goes on to say, but when you ask, you don't get it. Because you ask from a wrong passion, from a wrong motive to suit your own fleshly passions and fleshly desires. So he's like, you don't have because you don't ask. But then when you do ask, you're asking from a wrong motive. Meaning that there's a wrong way to pray. An ineffective way to pray, a pray, a, a way that we pray which just suits our own agenda, our own motive and our own ideas. But the very concept of prayer is to switch ideas. I'm to be in a place where I'm in the presence of God and where what he wants becomes what I want. And then I end up starting asking for that. I start asking for what God wants. We look at First John chapter five, and I'm just going to skim through a few uh, um, a few scriptures quickly. But I really want to emphasize this point. First John uh, chapter five, verse fourteen. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. He's saying that we have confidence in prayer when we ask according to his will. And that's the whole concept of Christianity, right? When we, when we, often, when we come to faith, we often say, you know, who's willing to, who wants to give their heart to the Lord? And the heart is the very center of a person. It is the, it's like the control center of a person. You know, it's like the control center of your physical being, of your emotional state, of your spiritual state, of your desires. It's the control center of all of this. And I'm saying, I'm going to give this to God. Everything that drives me and moves me in every way, shape or form, I'm going to hand over to him. and I'm going to surrender it to him. And it's no longer my will and my way and my desires 
but his. Now, I know this raises a question. Someone's like, well, what about my healing? Or what about, you know, I want a new house. Like, and, and all of these things. I'm not saying that we can't bring our, our, our wants before God as well. But the question is, is what is the motive of our want? When we think back to, to John 14 and 13, it essentially says that Jesus will do anything in accordance with his will to glorify the Father. The question is, is what we want, is it to glorify God ultimately? Do I want healing so I can just be healed, walk around and be cool? Or do I want healing so I can be healed, walk around cool and testify of the great work that God has done in my life? How does what I'm asking for lead to God being glorified? Because this is what Jesus says where I answer prayer. And when it glorifies the Father, that's the whole point of existence. To glorify God. Paul says whether I eat or drink, whatever I do, I want to glorify him. So how much more should that be reflected in prayer? That we are called to glorify him. Our heart's desires should be to see the the sun lifted upon high. Because when Jesus is lifted upon high, the father is lifted upon high. Prayer is to to switch ideas, to take away my fleshly desires and wants, and to take on board what God wants. There's also another point in in Mark chapter 1 that really stands out, and it's the fact that it says that Jesus arose very early in the morning, And he went away to a solitary place. Some translations will read, he went away to a desolate place. And there he prayed, it says. And when I was studying this passage, and it speaks to the desolate place, or the solitary place, sorry, the word essentially means... The word essentially means to go to a place that is unpopulated and uncultivated. It's unpopulated and it's uncultivated. No one else is there and nothing else is there. That's where Jesus went. So you think of Jesus's, like, those couple of days. And and what's been happening in the background, he spent 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. 40 days in fasting and in prayer preparing himself for the ministry that he's about to undertake, the three years of ministry. And then he goes for all that I listed earlier. And then he comes to this this solitary place to pray. And it says, um, around about verse 37, it says, sorry, in verse 36, it says, Simon and his companions went to look for him. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone is looking for you. Jesus replied, let us go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also. That is why I have come. Now, you think about that. 
Jesus takes himself away from the people to keep himself on course with what the reason why he's came. He's healed a ton of people. Tons of, the whole city showed up at the door, like grasped that. Like, I know the city wouldn't have been as big as Leeds. Like, you know, like what, nearly 800,000 people or something like that. Like, it's not that many people, but there still would have been a good, I reckon a good thousand at least. All these people show up. He, he heals these people in an amazing way. And then they're all looking for him. When you read it in other trans, when you read it in other parts of the Gospels, and you correlate the Gospels, when you read it in Luke, like forty-one and forty, verse Luke chapter four, verse forty-one and forty-two, or forty-two and forty-three, it, it basically says that they were looking for him to try and keep him there because they had needs, and he wanted they wanted their needs to be met. Now. Hear my heart when I'm saying, I'm not saying that we can't bring our needs before God. The Bible tells us clearly, 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7, we're told to cast our cares upon him, for he cares for us. We know that he is the burden lifter. Here Jesus has come for a specific purpose, to preach the gospel, and he's offering a healing that is greater than the one they're asking for. He's offering a freedom greater than the one they're asking for. Many of these people would have been wanting, they would have been seeing potentially this is the Messiah. We, maybe he's going to come and conquer the Roman Empire and we won't have to be crippled with taxes anymore. And Jesus is like, I've come for far greater a purpose. I haven't come to just destroy an earthly kingdom. I've come to establish a heavenly one. It's far greater. But the people were so focused on their immediate need that they missed the greater picture of what was going on with Jesus and why he had come and Jesus puts himself in a solitary place I think he he sets a great example he puts himself in a solitary place so that the immediate want the thing that was urgent didn't cover over what was important don't get twisted we have to address the urgent things but we have to do we're also in a place where you're a limited being and I think what Jesus models here is Jesus brings us to a point where, I, don't get me wrong, this is speculation here. So don't take it as gospel as to what I'm saying. But I can imagine Jesus being in prayer for those people with God the Father. But realizing that he has to go on to the next towns to keep preaching the gospel and keep sharing the gospel. Does that make sense? God, God, Jesus isn't a God who just leaves us. His call to us, he says, take my yoke upon me and learn from me because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The the yoke was like this piece of wood that attached two oxen together, meaning that when the yoke is placed on the neck, it means that Jesus is side by side with us. He says, place my yoke upon you. I don't think he leaves us in any way, shape or form. But I do think sometimes his answer to prayer looks different to how we would expect. Sometimes it's how we expect and sometimes it isn't. Sometimes it takes longer. And this is what I see working out here. And Jesus, to keep himself on course, puts himself in a solitary position, in a solitary place to seek the Father. And look at what the outcome is. The outcome is, he says, that he needs to preach in other villages and other towns also. That is why he come. 
coming out of that solitary place, he understands the will of God. He knows, sorry, the will of the Father. Jesus is God. The will of the Father. He knows the will of the Father. He sticks to the will of the Father. He doesn't get taken off course. He sticks to what God has called, what the Father has called him to do. And I think this is why prayer in solitary spaces is so necessary. I'm not saying it's necessarily needed as a daily rhythm. But I think it's a, a practice that needs to be practiced at least periodically. Just time where you remove yourself out, especially in the culture in which we live. We're so interruptible. We have phones. They shouldn't even be called phones. Like, you think about a phone, you call someone, they answer, you talk, and you hang up. Like, your phone can do so much more than that. Do you know what I mean? I do my banking. Like, I do everything. There's an app for everything. Do you know what I mean? And it just pings all the time. Like, we're so interruptible. And what these interruptions do is it can take you off course from what God has called you to do. I was, I was talking to a friend last week and he, 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 he quoted um, Corey Ten Boom. And he said, if the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. But then he added to that. And he said, if the devil can't make you busy, he'll make you distracted. And I see it all the time. First and foremost, in the mirror. We, we live in an age of infotainment. We're either consuming information or entertainment constantly. And we're called as Christians to outwork and outlive our lives to the glory of the Father. To do that, we have to know what his will is, meaning we have to read his word, meaning we have to be in prayer. But And this goes back to my, my point, what I started with. Sometimes I think we, we take the culture and then create Christianity through the culture. So it's commonplace. It's normal for everyone to be distracted. So it's just everyone, like, I'm not saying everyone fully, fully is, but typically the younger you get in generations, my generation and below, tend to be where you get more distraction. Because we're more attuned and we've grown up more with tech. And so we take the culture and we create Christianity through the lens of the culture. And so we end up consuming Christian practices in a worldly way. The prayer in solitude isn't to be rushed. I'm not saying you have to spend an hour in prayer. If you want to spend an hour in prayer, brilliant. You want to spend three hours, brilliant. If you want to spend 10 seconds, brilliant. However, when you're walking with God and you're growing in your faith and you want a relationship with him, that time will increase. It's just fact. You'll see the benefit of it. You'll be in communion with the Father and you'll want more of it. And so when we're in such a distracted world, it can be so easy to be pulled out of those spaces very quickly, because something urgent pops up. He's like, oh, I wanted to finish praying, but 
I need to respond to this. Or I wanted to finish praying, but I need to go and do this now. And so many things get in the way. And I think what Jesus models for us is the necessity of solitude. Just being in a, just a place away from people, just for a moment. I'm not saying you live your life in that place. Do you know what I mean? I have nothing against monks, but I'm not calling us to go to monasteries. I'm not saying that. But I think there's some virtue in doing part of your life in some way like that, in the sense of just having a moment of just you and God and no one else. Like, like turning your phone off for a moment. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the dreaded, unthinkable thing. You know, you, you know when you turn your phone off and then you think, oh, well, why someone's going to call? Maybe I should just turn it on and put it on silent just to make sure because someone might call <laughs> or I might miss this text. <laughs> and the reason why I think Jesus models this, and I'll end with this as my time is spent. I think Jesus models this because he knows our weaknesses. He knows how weak we are. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is Hebrews 4, um, verses 15 to 16. And it says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet is without sin. So then let us boldly draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. He says, we do not have a high priest who was unable to empathize with our weaknesses. You know what that means? Don't strike me down. It means Jesus was weak. Oftentimes we think of the power and we speak of the power and the strength of God. Never really speak of the weakness of God. Hear me out. I'm not preaching heresy. Hear me out. (laughs) Hear me out. The difference between Jesus and I, Jesus and you, in terms of weakness. Weakness is a susceptibility to sin. So Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, as we read in the beginning of Mark 1, as we read in in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. So there's a foothold, there's, there's, there's a way in which he can be drawn to sin. right? But Jesus didn't sin. So Jesus endures the temptation, whereas I, I'm faced with temptation. And at some point, if it's on a spectrum of, let's say, 0 to 100, at some point I give in. Might be 5%, 10%, 30%, 95%. some point I'll give in at some point. There's some temptations I might endure through Christ, which is brilliant and amazing. And as I mature in my faith, I do that. Amazing. But Jesus didn't. And so what we see is, you see me, I am sinfully weak. I'm prone to sin. And I fall into it. So I am sinfully weak. Jesus was sinlessly weak. Meaning, he was able to be tempted in the same way that we are. Yet, he endured the entirety of it. He knows your temptation far greater than you do. Because he saw the whole of the temptation through. He got to the end of it. He endured it fully. And that's all temptation. And so when Jesus is pouring himself out all day all throughout the evening 
And then he wakes up very early whilst it is still very dark to pray. I think what he models for us is the need for prayer. The need, like, and that need is because I am weak. Weak meaning I am incapable of living a righteous life in and of my own strength. Absolutely incapable. I need to switch my desires with his. Because if I hold on to these and keep these desires, they will only lead me astray. And so I must find myself in prayer. I must detach at some point in order to remain in good communion and good fellowship rather than just veering off all the time. And I'm I'm not trying to preach some works-based righteousness like you must pray, you must do this, you must do that. But what I am saying is you grow in your relationship with God. You will naturally desire it more. It won't be a want, it will be a desire. When you, when you see the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see in the commandments in the Old Testament, thou shalt, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, thou shalt not worship any other God. But you see, when Jesus preaches on the Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew 5 through to 7, Jesus speaks to the desires of the heart. He doesn't just speak to, you must do this. He, he speaks to the very heart of the person. He says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not murder. I say, if you even call your brother a fool and hold anger in your heart towards him, you're in danger of the fires of hell. So you shall not commit adultery. If you even lust, in a woman, lust for a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery, he says. Speaking to the heart of the issue. And so it's like in the Old Testament, we see thou shall. And in this New Testament, we see I will. It's a desire. Jesus gives us a new heart. He changes our heart. And so in that change of heart, we have a change of desires. But we live in a world that is sinful. And I am weak. And I am a man with a new heart in a sinful world. And so it's easy for me to be drawn back. And this is why prayer is necessary. Because I must exchange these desires that I let creep in. This is why we see in Proverbs, it says, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Guard your heart with every diligence. Above everything you must guard in this world, guard your heart. Because there are so many things through the eyes and the ears trying to penetrate it, to guard, to lead you a certain way. To lead you away from Christ. And so this is why we pray. So we can change our desires. My, my time is, is spent. I wish I could share more. For those in YA, will we sharing more? I'm praying. <laughs> Some of you might be shaving beards and dying hair <laughs> to hear a bit more. But um, yeah, we'll share more in a few weeks and unpack different types of prayer that is so well-rounded and needed for our practice of our faith but I just want to leave you with this I don't want you to to read this passage and feel condemned at all man I felt that for so long like man I struggle to get up in the morning when I say struggle to get up in the morning to give context for me to get a time of solitude in the morning I have to be up at 5am or before because my youngest son will wake up around about 5.25. 
And so it's hard to get up before that. <laughs> I try, but it's hard. <laughs> and there are some times where I do, and I get that time of solitude, prayer in, sol- in solitude, and it's great. And there are other times where Jesse wakes up, and guess what? Me and Jesse go downstairs and pray together. And he's playing, he might be pulling my beard and smacking me in the eyes, and stuff like that, because my eyes are closed. <laughs> But I see it as as such a beautiful thing. And this is why I say I don't think the solitude has to be practiced day in, day out. Man, if the day permits, brilliant. If it doesn't, find another day. This isn't to condemn. This is just to show the desperate need for prayer. And a specific type of prayer. Because we are prone to wonder. Like I said earlier, I love old hymns. There's an old hymn. I forgot the name of it off the top of my head. But the song, it goes... Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Hold to those words because I know I'm prone to wonder. And this is why I need prayer. And so, I just want to close by spending a moment now, just in prayer. Just individual, just you and God. I know we're not in solitude because we're in a room of what, probably like 500 odd people. <laughs> it's not very unpopulated. Um, but if you're comfortable about praying, great, use this time to pray. If you're not, don't worry about it. Just close your eyes and act like you are. <laughs> but um, just, we're just going to spend 30 seconds. And all I want to do in that 30 seconds is for us to ask God how we can spend more time with him. Where can I do it? And just see what he wants to take out for you to put in. You might have the space already. Just ask how you want to, how God can highlight that to you. Father, thank you for your word that you've blessed us with so graciously. I pray. David says, thy words have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Lord, would we hide your word in our hearts? And would you teach us to pray? Help us to find those times of solitude in our days or weeks, months or years. Lord willing. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm just going to hand over to the worship band. We'll just sing a song in reflection. God bless you guys. <laughs>